cool. Record. Bonjour, vous pouvez vous asseoir. Hello, please be seated. Dans la cause de Yves Caleb, Yves Caleb Jr. Charles versus His Majesty the King, for the appellant, Yves Caleb Jr. Charles, we have Emmanuel Réau. Ro? Ro. There we go. Thank you. And for the respondent, His Majesty the King, Mariano Ferraro and Mathieu Locas. Please be advised that there is a publication ban in this case pursuant to sections 110.1 and 111.1 on the Youth Justice System Act. Thank you. Ms. Ho? Justices, good morning. If the court is ready, I will proceed. The appellant submits that the issue here is related to reliability that arises from this court's decision, Bradshaw. Uh, the respondent mentions the use of the victim's statement as corroborative evidence and refers directly to paragraph 71 of the Court of Appeal decision. This is an element that was not only never s seen at, the, at trial, but the appellant submits that in fact it does not apply here. Paragraph 71, according to the appellant, is a part of the decision by the majority judges at the Court of Appeal. And I am now ready to answer questions if the court has any, but if uh, not, then I will go straight to the matter here at issue. Question. So I would like to know, in your opinion, the fact that the victim's testimony and K.A.'s statement are similar should be set aside? So if so, why? What I would submit, and thank you, uh, Justice Kazarer, but what I would submit is that the trial judge was not asked that question. Conway from the Court of Appeal of Ontario was used by the trial judge to guide him because the trial was split. So the victim testified 
before the voir dire was opened, and then it came back. Question. But with regard to the decision on the voir dire, at that point he had heard it, even though it was outside the purview of the voir dire, it was part of the trial, but he had heard the evidence, the victim's testimony. Yes, that's right, Justice Gauthier. He had heard it, and he had asked uh, the respondent at that time whether the respondent wanted to adduce evidence during the voir dire, and the Crown said no. So technically, uh, the evidence was not adduced, but it was in the judge's head. Yes, that's right, but there is also the issue of uh, the watertightness of the voir dire uh, and making it very separate from the rest of the trial. And it's that principle there uh, that uh, led the trial judge to refer to uh, Conway. Yes, but when you talk about the watertightness, like it's, it's a big word. I understand uh, that I understand Conway, and I understand that it wasn't in the record of the trial, uh, but it, it was perhaps necessary to take into account the exceptional circumstances. It, it's exceptional for a, a judge to have all of that in his mind while assessing the evidence during the voir dire. I would say, Justice Kesser, that this expectation of having a purist exists in certain areas of uh, penal justice when it comes to adducing evidence. Yes, in some areas, the court, when it is an a charter issue, for example, that, that it's less necessary to be as much of a purist, if you will. In a number of times, be it with regard to uh, the uh, partiality of a, a judge, with regard to whether uh, any evidence should be adduced at a trial, then there has, really has to be a connection between the evidence and the reason why it is being brought. Question. Yes, but when you talk about purism, and without drawing any conclusions, but if hypothetical, if there were a retrial, as you are requesting, what do you think is going to happen? Uh, the victim's statement is already there, and uh, the statement, the victim's statement, corroborates K.A.'s statement. I would respectfully submit, Justice Kuti, that that element is relevant under the second step of the analysis under Bradshaw. So that's when the judge looks at the statement within the voir dire and then looks at it in the context of all of the evidence. But when it comes to the threshold of reliability, which the judge must examine first, I would submit that the complainant's statement is not relevant there. Question. Even if we draw the conclusion that the trial judge made an error in law, What is the role of the victim's testimony? What role should that testimony play for the Court of Appeal when the Court of Appeal is reviewing whether the statement should have been admitted? So even if we agree, even if hypothetically we, are, we agree that it wasn't 
a consideration for the trial judge because it was in the Vazia. So if we find that there was an error in law committed by the trial judge, I would ask, can the Court of Appeal consider the witness's testimony as being corroborative evidence to decide whether the statement should have been admitted. That's my question. Thank you, Justice. I would submit that given that the error took place when evaluating the threshold of reliability, then the Court of Appeal cannot use as corroborative evidence to influence its decision with regard to the victim statement, or, or cannot use the victim statement. So what if there, we come to the conclusion that, or if a Court of Appeal decides that there has been an error in law, the Court of Appeal has two choices. It can send uh, the case back to uh, the trial level or determine whether the statement could be ad admissible. Isn't that right, or am I wrong? I'm sorry, I had, I had not understood your, your question correctly. I apologize. Yes, the Court of Appeal can decide whether the statement should have been admitted, but when it, like what the minority opinion in the Court of, uh, of Appeal of Quebec stated, the, the kind of, mis of error that the judge made meant that the statement could not be admitted. Question, when you say the error that the judge made, yes, technically the evidence was not adduced, the, so LB's testimony. But if you have a, a new trial, what do you think the Crown will do? The Crown will adduce the, the victim's testimony and the statement. And so that's what my, my colleague is asking is, yes, thank you. So if we say, like so hypothetically, so if we say yes, okay, the trial judge made an error, but now we have this evidence, so can we say this statement is admissible for one thing, and then you're also really emphasizing a corroborative evidence, but are you saying that Bradshaw requires corroborative evidence? So I will ask, I will answer the first part of your question and then I'll answer the second part of your question. So respectfully, Justice, when you ask me what would be different in a new trial, the defense would have the opportunity to conduct a, a cross-examination and perhaps change its line of questioning and to not have a trial by ambush through the voir dire. So yes, it could uh, make a difference in a new trial. So to answer the second part of your question, Bradshaw, well this court in Bradshaw states that yes, there is procedural reliability and substantive reliability. And I would say that there is no indication of uh, procedural reliability with regard to KA's statement. Yes, question, but you do agree that Bradshaw does not necessarily require corroboration. We could just use the circumstances in which the statement was made. Yes, that's right, absolutely. Bradshaw does not require corrobor corroboration, corroborative evidence, and, and that's 
not what the appellant is saying. And it's not even reliability for the entire statement. That's not what Bradshaw states. But here we have a statement where there is no indication of procedural reliability. It's not a recorded audio or video. It's not under oath and there's no uh, com oath taking commissioner. Question. Yes, but if we set aside all of the circumstances that could show reliability, you are actually overriding the decision of the majority of the Court of Appeal. They were open in a way that you are not. So it's true and you are right that a video or an oath would have changed things, but we're faced with something else. And uh, Justices Doyon and Cournoyer mentioned that. So yes, I understand that Justice Bachon states that we're discussing uh, substantive reliability, not procedural reliability. But the majority of the justices at the Court of Appeal do not follow that opinion. Answer. So the, there are, are problems at two levels with uh, the indications of reliability that were taken by the uh, justices at the Court of Appeal. One had to do with the reliability of the investigator and the willingness to collaborate. And then they state some of those um, indicators. But in Bradshaw, those elements do not make a statement more reliable. It's the absence of those elements that would make a statement reliable with less weight. Then the majority mentions, in the Court of Appeal, mentions a number of parameters. He was arrested, he was uh, read his rights, he was, uh, he went to the station and he was accompanied by his mother. And an employer. So the fact that he has spoken to a lawyer does not have an impact on procedural reliability. And then after the fact that he was read his rights, well, I would submit that the rights read to someone who's been arrested are very different from the obligation to tell the truth. So, yes, you uh, do not agree with the position of Justices Doyon and Cournoyer. So, you are contradicting the majority of the Court of Appeal that are, that are examining the combined effect of the corroborative evidence and the circumstances. Like the trial judge in the decision on the voir dire mentioned both and said that it was both together. And that's not excluded by Bradshaw. So Justice Doyon and Justice Cournoyer say with regard to the explanation by Mr. Bachan that these are neutral and secondary considerations, the answer was yes. When they are taken individually, they may seem neutral, but if you look at them in context and together, that in fact it was the day after, there are, there's no criminal record. And unlike in Bradshaw, uh, there were no contradictory statements there were no uh, leading questions. You mentioned that. Um, these factors 
and others with regard to uh, responsibility were considered the by the majority of the Court of Appeal. Were they wrong to consider the combined effect of both? So I think that what the main problem was, was that the majority mentioned that K.A. completely incriminates himself. If you go to VDD2, uh, which has to do, or VDD2, sorry, that um, goes to the rights and the arrest. So at the top, at the top of the statement, you have the reasons why K.A. was arrested, and there you can see in that paragraph uh, that he does not have the weapon on him. He was arrested for the incident that happened with the victim. So, so the, what we have is um, an imitation firearm uh, and um, threats made with a firearm and other charges. So when it comes to incrimination, I would say that it's the opposite. So, but he's the one who had brought the weapon and he still had it in his possession when he made the statement. So that's not exculpatory. But the trial did not, the trial judge did not believe the accused. But the judge, the trial judge, must consider all reasonable hypotheses. And one of the, those reasonable hypotheses is that K.A. had the weapon. And in that context, K.A. minimized his role. Yes, but K.A. had brought the weapon, according to his own statement. He didn't have it in his hands, according to his statement, when the incident occurred. But he did bring it. Yes, uh, perhaps I did not. I wasn't clear. So it was really... what you just described. This is a hypothesis that the judge must keep in mind and in this context it's false to dare to say that he he incriminates himself entirely. He partially incriminated himself? Yes. Yes. For the possession of the weapon. Not for uttering threats or assault with a weapon or for dangerous purposes either. Uttering threats or uh, assault with a weapon either. For violent events, if I can say that, he completely blames uh, the appellant. Does this dissenting judge take a too narrow view in that if we agree with the fact that the first aspect is corroborated, that is the weapon, via the search, but that the second aspect, the, se the role of the appellant, is not at all corroborated by the search results. There is nonetheless a value in this evidence in, with regard to the circumstances of the, the statement. Even if we agree that it doesn't directly corroborate the second aspect, it seems to me 
that there's a risk that the dissenting voice strays from this aspect of the statement in considering all the procedural and substantive aspects, but particularly the fact that he told the truth has a weight in the judge's mind. Is that a mistake? Thank you, uh, Justice. With due respect, the dissenting judge believes that there's only one goal, and I believe that the respondent in uh, the voir dire, the goal was to present the evidence in the voir dire, to present how it unfolded. The event, how the event unfolded in the bathroom, and not whether there was the use of a weapon. And that's what the minority keeps in mind. As of the moment, when it's no longer just a question of what unfolded in the bathroom, then I think we'll go back to Bradshaw here. In Bradshaw, there was this, there was a corroborative aspect, telephone calls between uh, the declarant and the other party. It was not seen as a sufficient corroborative evidence. If we come back to this case, the minority says the statement is, considering the statement applies only to the unfolding of the events, the minority says that the element presented, that is the results of the search, is not as all relevant to the unfolding of the events. Do you think that the minority was right to say it wasn't relevant, but, but there was nonetheless a weapon in these events? That was the crux of the thing. But when you say it's not at all relevant to talk about the firearm, it is fire. It is relevant. With due respect, the matter of the firearm was never contested. So there's not even a need for corroborative evidence. You're right. The evidence came in otherwise through images from the police. This firearm, however, uh, was not checked for fingerprints or DNA. The judges, for the majority, place the accent, emphasized rather, at paragraph 58, speaking of the two aspects of the statement, that it must be remembered that at the voir dire, the appellant hadn't given his full testimony and nothing was entered into evidence. And so the uh, appellant's uh, participation had to be demonstrated as well as the presence of a weapon. A weapon. The statement corroborates the use of a firearm by the appellant, a firearm that K.A. provided. He emphasizes the moment of the voir dire. Is that something to keep in mind?
at the voir dire, the victim testified. <laughs> you, you, just now you said yes, but you want to have uh, your cake and eat it too. You've asked me two different things. You've asked me, is it a contest in, contested in the trial? It was admitted. The fact that there was a weapon was not contested during the examination and crop examination of the complainant. So I would submit, and, and the respondent does not admit the entering into evidence. I'll mention now as well that the statement comes after one hour of discussion with the police and we don't know what was said. We don't know what the police said to K.A. We don't know if the events were related, if there were explanations. We have absolutely no idea of what was said. And the police uh, who testified didn't go into this. It's not a spontaneous statement then. It didn't happen after an individual was arrested. It's rather a statement with someone who has been detained. That also needs to be taken into account when doing the reliability threshold analysis. If I understand your position well, there are factors that support both sides, but your essential position is that the circumstantial proof and the evidence There, there's the possibility that the declarant had, was self-interested in his statement. Exactly. I'm not complaining that this is a bad brief or that this individual is, thinks he's telling the truth but is mistaken. The 24 hours is not relevant in this case. We're, we have an individual who may lie to save his own skin. This specific risk with regard to the reliability threshold, well, the judge needed more than just the results of a search that happened 24 hours after the events. Or a caution uh, from the lawyer when the man was detained. It I'll remind this court that this is an exception. Entering hearsay is as evidence is exceptional. Why? Because the judge cannot assess the credibility and reliability of the witness. He must be able, he must rather rely on two sheets of paper in this case. And in this context, this court has said several times, including in, in Bradshaw, that guarantees must be provided to ensure 
that this exception does not become a regular occurrence. The respondent asks this court to be flexible with this application. What the appellant wants is that this flexibility not be to the detriment of the rigor that's required. The two overlap, the two are necessary, ensuring that rights are upheld and that statements are not entered without any corroborative evidence. Unless this court has other questions, this uh, completes my uh, plea. Let's go back to, uh, well, I suppose your colleagues will raise it. I'd like to hear your position on the combined effect of the corroborative evidence and the circumstances. What approach should we adopt? This is something that divides judges. Judges, I don't know you have, if you have it on hand, but paragraph 32 of Bradshaw signals that the two approaches to establish threshold reliability may work in tandem. They are not mutually exclusive, that's in Kelowan. And further in that same paragraph, there is sort of a caution Judge Justice Karakatsanis uh, I know of no it says here I know of no other example from this court's jurisprudence of substantive and procedural reliability complementing each other to justify the admission of a hearsay statement how does this relate to this case one moment, please, Justice. I'd submit that prudence suggested in this paragraph is that that the minority Court of Appeal uh, opinion adopted. And I'm at the last sentence of paragraph 32 in Bradshaw. Great care must be taken to ensure that this combined approach does not lead to the omission of statements despite insufficient procedural safeguards and guarantees of inherent trustworthiness to overcome the hearsay dangers. I'd submit respectfully that the minority of the Court of Appeal has done so, has weighed the guarantees, the safeguards rather, the, rather the procedural guarantees, the circumstances of arrest and so on, and also weighs the corroborative evidence of the search. Since the corroborative as evidence does not concern the reason why the respondent wants to enter the hearsay, the dissenting judge feels that overall it's dangerous the hearsay dangers have not been overcome and the KA has an interest in 
entering this statement. Thank you very much. Ms. Ferraro. Good morning. So the appellant is um, appealing a decision by the majority of the Court of Appeal of uh, Quebec, which uh, deals with <clears throat> the need to, um, to uh, defer to the trial judge's decision and to show flexibility. Uh, so we haven't heard deference very much today, but it must be applied here. For context, the trial judge, uh, I would ask the question, what is the standard of review? when it comes uh, to the admissibility of evidence. Is it a question of law? It is, isn't it? Yes, it is. <clears throat> but this court, through Vardan uh, and Yuvarajan, has been very clear, saying that uh, it, there must be deference, even if there is a question in law, with regard to the factual analysis by the trial judge. So when it comes to an error in, in, in principle, there has to be deference when it comes to the way that the trial judge weighed the facts, and this applies here, I would submit. So the context here is a statement by a 17-year-old man who has no criminal record and then consulted a lawyer with his mother and admits that he brought a weapon to school, knowing that that weapon uh, was used uh, in front of him to, to threaten another student. Then he consents to having a search in his bedroom at home where the weapon is found. Respectfully, if we follow the reasoning of the appellant here and of the dissenting opinion, uh, then we would be stuck in an analysis that is uh, truly inflexible. And, and that was not the intention of this court, in our opinion, when it comes to Bradshaw. If I may, I would like to address the issue of the results of the search to and whether it is corroborative evidence or not. Then I would like to address the uh, uh, testimony of uh, the complainant, LB, and then uh, the circumstances that were weighed by the trial judge, and finally, uh, the demonstration that the trial judge's decision was reasonable. So the results of the search first. So what was the evidence? What was uh, found? And the appellant in uh, the appellant's uh, brief says that, it, that the weapon was discovered in a bedroom and that's very narrow and of course it doesn't necessarily corroborate a big part of the statements. But in fact, it is the weapon that corresponds to the description of the uh, weapon that was described by uh, the uh, declarant and by the complainant and that was found uh, in the home of the person who was given the weapon after the incident. So it's not just the discovery of a weapon, it is uh, the weapon that was used to commit the crime. 
Then there are the aspects of the statement. What did the Crown want to adduce as evidence? Well, the trial judge thought that all of the aspects of the statement were important. It's a very brief statement that, declare, that, that describes a very brief incident. But in fact, what the Crown was trying to adduce as evidence here corresponds to the complainant's testimony. And so there was a problem at the high school between LB and the accused. And uh, so the accused uh, would have uh, used an imitation firearm that looks like the one, like the kind of gun that police use. And then after the incident, it was given to K.A. and K.A. put it in his bag. And those were the elements that the Crown wanted to adduce. And so what are the charges? We're talking about possession of a firearm and we're talking about the use of a firearm in a dangerous situation and threats, uttering threats. And so that, those are the, uh, the charges. And when it comes to the declarant, the use of the weapon was an important element that the Crown wanted to submit as evidence. As the majority of the Court of Appeal concluded, there was no admission that the weapon corresponding to that description had been Rather, it was given to Kay in the bathroom, and the chain of, of custody for that weapon or where who had it when was important. So Kay said, and put it in my bag. Il décrit l'arme comme un number, l'arme numéro deux parce qu'il y en avait deux. So they're talking about two weapon. Hole opening instead of an orange tip. Et il va dire, Mr. Caleb used the metal gun. Donc ce sont des éléments importants de la déclaration. So these are all important elements of the statements that are corroborated by the discovery of the weapon during the search. Question. So did the trial judge identify the fact that the evidence was important with regard to the accused's participation in the incident? Because I did not see that recognized by the trial judge. The trial judge did identify the important elements of the statement based on Bradshaw when assessing the corroborative effect, and he will decide that all of the elements of the statement are important for that corroboration, given how short the statement is. I did not uh, uh, question. I did not see that explanation of the reason why the statement. had been not submitted by the trial judge? That's right. Question, because I looked and I didn't find it that he said that the, ele the important elements of the statement is related to the accused participation. That's right. There is nothing there. He's, he looks at all of the elements, but Bradshaw states that it is very important to identify the reason why the statement can be used at trial. That's right. Question, so was it a mistake? Was it an error to fail to identify the reason why the statement could be admitted? Answer, I think that in this specific case, no, given this, the type of statement and the elements that the Crown was trying to submit as evidence. Because often, when it comes, well, when it comes to LB's testimony, what was happening, it was not the Crown's case, it was more what the Crown was trying to prove, which was that the victim had made the right statement. 
So when it comes to the weapon and, and whether the weapon was given to K.A. or not, the Crown did not make a mistake, or the just judge did not make a mistake, because everything in the statement had to do with the use of the weapon and what happened in the bathroom. So in this particular set of, of facts, I, I, I imagine that the judge could have been more detailed, but did not commit an error in law. Question. So the Devon's defense stated that K, it was in K.A.'s interest to lie, and the defense is saying that the majority of the Court of Appeal erred when saying that K.A. incriminated himself. Uh, in our opinion, K.A. did incriminate himself. But really, the factors that have to be taken into account are linked to the plausible hypotheses in the circumstances, and no one mentioned any kind of threat uttered by K.A. There was no relationship between K.A. and uh, the complainant, and there was no motive uh, for which K.A. would have made threats. In those circumstances, the statement is incriminating, and incriminating insofar as K.A. brought uh, a firearm to school in a dangerous context for the public. Question. So one of the um, elements in the dissent in, at the Court of Appeal is that there was a break or a separating out of the elements of the statement. So at paragraph 33 of the Court of Appeal decision, Justice Bachon says that that cannot happen and that l allows him to uh, offer his dissenting opinion. And then at paragraph 58 or 59, the majority opinion of the Court of Appeal explain that in fact evidence cannot be split in two when it comes to corroborating an important element of the trial. So do you think that there's a problem with the analysis under Bradshaw? Answer, yes, and that's what we say in our factum, uh, because we believe that there are two steps of the analysis uh, with regard to corroborating, corroborating evidence, and that is linked to 57 in Bradshaw, and there was some confusion about that at the Court of Appeal. So it's important to see whether it's useful and then whether it's reliable. So then we want to make sure that the voir does not become a trial within a trial and that it uh, so that it's not something that reinforces the crown's theory of the case rather than simply um, determining whether the evidence can be submitted so really at the voir the judge must be able to see whether the, th the threshold of reliability is met uh, but there is no direct line between uh, whether the evidence is considered useful and whether it's used considered reliable and so or to meet the, the threshold of reliability so when it comes to the corroborative element you have to see what element is considered corroborative is it a part of the statement or all of the statement and we see in 57 of Bradshaw that there are elements that help us decide that so here, in our opinion, the dissenting judge of the Court of Appeal committed an error in law because there is this idea 
that the, the reliability threshold at the Voisier and the threshold for substantive uh, reliability, if those two are confused, then we get an error in law. So what we need to know is whether the partial substantive reliability of this statement is relevant or not. And it is relevant when it comes to assessing the threshold of reliability. So the fact that the evidence only corroborates one main aspect of the statement is not ignored in the analysis, it's weighed based on the reasonable hypothesis, hypotheses linked to the case. I would now like to discuss the testimony by the complainant L.B. The respondent in its factum states that the trial judge used Conway, Conway to decide that the complainant's testimony should not be used as corroborative evidence. And so he maintains or, or, or respects the limits of the voisie in that way. But as you know, Conway is, goes back to 1987 in a very different context where the corroborative evidence was excluded from the analysis. And so that notion of the airtightness of the voir dire in Conway it cannot uh, be split out from uh, what was reversed by this court in Kelowan. So really, we have to look at the jurisprudence and see whether a judge can uh, take evidence that was heard before a voisier, which is in his or her mind, and, but has not been submitted in the voisier. And I would submit that the question is particularly important here because the corroborative evidence is testimony. So here, if the defense does not refuses to have that testimony presented, then would it be necessary to have uh, the victim or the complainant um, testify again. And the respondent would submit that no, because since Conway, uh, the, the courts take a more comprehensive view where the judge must have a sense of the entire record. Because, in fact, uh, the judge's job is to ensure that the jury is, has the tools necessary, for example, to be able to assess the truthfulness of the testimony. So in this here, if the judge has heard the complainant's testimony, the judge must be able to take it into account when analyzing the threshold of reliability. Question. There was a question by Justice Karakatsanis to, to uh, Ms. Rowe. So if we recognize that the Court of Appeal made an error, can we take into account the witnesses or the, com the, the complainant statements um, when we are deciding on this case? Answer, when it comes to whether the trial judge could take into account the complainant's uh, testimony or not, really when it comes to the Court of Appeal, the Court of Appeal must be able to look at all of the evidence on the record to see whether there was in fact an error in law. And in, uh, as part of its exercise of review, and, and we think that the majority here did that, was entitled to take into account the corroborative evidence that was not used by the trial judge in this case. Question. So unless I'm wrong, you go further in your factum and in your condensed book. You submit that this court never enshrined Conway 
So there are elements in the case law that would lead us to believe that there is more openness to the idea of a completely airtight voir dire. So your main position is that we are not bound by that and we should not be bound by that. Is that what you're saying? You're exactly right. Our main position is that this portion of the Conway decision regarding the use of the hearsay in uh, the voir dialogue in silo is uh, not relevant. We can see indications in the case law to the effect that the court has a privileged overall vision of the case, of the dossier. We'll refer to couture with regard to corroborative evidence. Paragraph 84, the court will say nowhere in the voir dire nor in the trial. Uh, there's no benefit of corroborative evidence. Uh, I'll recall also Saskatchewan in Burns. The question is still open. How do you respond to the criticism that by adopting such a posture, we're eliminating from the voir dire its primary function? That is, if we ignore the rest with regard to law, as my colleague said, is the evidence admissible or no? Is there not a danger? And Conway, even if oh, if Conway is old school, is there not a principle there? I think that keeping the voir dire in isolation, unless there's an, uh, a specific consent, it should not be entered by the trial judge. It is a critical, however, that the judge should be able to keep it in mind. And the circumstances in which this statement were made, the testimony with regard to the police meeting, the uh, declarant, they're not necessarily relevant at the trial stage. The voir dire does protect the trial judge from non-relevant evidence. However, the trial judge must have the benefit of all the evidence heard at, to date. I think there's a danger that the unfolding of the trial in this case the complainant was a testified before the voir dire. However, let's look at the case where a judge makes a decision, excludes hypothetically evidence, later in the trial, a witness such as the complainant, fills in the holes in the evidence, corroborates. Is there not a risk that we'll be revisiting the voir dire, opening it up, and uh, making the trial chaotic? Uh, indeed, this is a question that can be asked, and in my opinion, the answer is that Bradshaw circumscribes what corroborative evidence can be. So already, we wouldn't be opening the floodgates to any other evidence that was heard after the voir dire. The evidence is circumscribed. 
And when the necessity becomes obvious during a trial that it could not have been planned in ahead of time, and the voir dire couldn't be planned, if it could be planned, the Crown is in charge. If ever a complainant's testimony was uh, corroborative, it would be heard before the voir dire, and the voir dire would be the end. If corroborative evidence comes after the exclusion of evidence from the voir dire, in that case, the parties could ask that the voir dire be reopened and ask the judge to do so. This would be an exceptional circumstance, however, uh, where the uh, Total corroboration would not be required before the voir dire. Do you agree that Judge Bachan's conclusion is correct at paragraph 50, 45? At the time of his statement, the declarant knew he was suspected, suspected and the effect of his statement reduces his responsibility and increases the blame on of the uh, appellant even with all the other considerations in this case this is a problem we can't assess the the statement and know if he lied the declarant lied what I, what I responded in uh, uh, well, paragraph 45 of the dissenting judge. I, we don't think it's plausible that K.A. uttered threats. In the statement, and this is what the trial judge said, instead of increasing the blame onto the, uh, throwing the blame onto the uh, appellant, K.A. did the opposite. He incriminated himself. And if he truly hoped to minimize his own participation, then it's a bit odd that he allowed this uh, search to take place. His mother consulted, uh, his mother was with him, he consulted a lawyer. He let them go directly into his bedroom and find the uh, weapon of the crime in his dresser drawer. This is nonetheless, incrimin nonetheless incriminating. This brings me to the circumstantial elements, the, cir the elements, rather, the circumstances that are in the second part of the dissenting judge's uh, uh, decision, or opinion, rather. He, he believes that the trial judge erred in considering circumstances which whose absence would only reduce the reliability, but whose presence do not increase the reliability. And the dissenting ju judge believes they should have played a secondary role. For example, there was no ethical problem in the police behavior, that the statement was made without hesitation, and so on. What the respondent submits is that the Couture and Bradshaw decisions Well, the statement, rather, if we return to the, the trial judge's decision, tab one of the respondent's 
condensed book. It's really as of 595, page 595, about line 18 that we see that the trial judge really focuses on the circumstances that will serve in the substantive reliability analysis. As for the absent, the circumstances that were absent, he names them. However, what he relies on is the fact that the, among others, the fact that uh, K.A. didn't have a criminal record, the time of the statement, and so on. And the fact that he minimizes the appellant's role in all this situation. So we believe it's a case of weighing the circumstances. We're really in the deference standard here, which should be uh, followed with regard to the weighing of evidence. He minimizes the role of the appellant, but he faces the same charges. Uh, assault with a weapon, threats, and so on. So he, he minicizes the role of the appellant, perhaps, but as for the main charges, that's not the case. He didn't know LB. There's no reason for him to threat LB. So in these circumstances, we can't uh, pick apart the statement, changed the statement. He didn't even know uh, LB. Uh, LB had a history with the appellant. There had been a quarrel. K.A. couldn't even name LB. Yes, uh, K.A. was detained, was charged, but he was very transparent with regard to what was plausible. And he was, after consulting a lawyer, with his mother by his side. He partially incriminated himself, perhaps. With regard to the circumstances, in our opinion, the dissenting judge was wrong in uh, taking sort of the, some of this court's statements of principles that could be considered secondary, in fact. The majority says that the corroborative evidence must be taken into account with the circumstances. This is like a snake that eats its own tail. There are considerations regarding the admissibility of the evidence and the weight of the evidence. Some considerations are common and some are distinct. It's difficult sometimes to understand what is relevant in the analysis. I completely agree. The weight given to a circumstance will never be the same from one case to another. And that's what the majority says.
says in this case, with the time that's left, I will repeat the, reiterate the reasonability of the trial judge's decision. He took the, the, the judge, based on the circumstances and the corroborative evidence, the judge was right to uh, allow the hearsay statement without necessarily reducing the reliability threshold. Necess necessity, the necessity of a statement can inform it. This isn't a KGB where one arrives at a trial and then the initial statement was contradicted. Ce contexte, à notre avis, doit informer les hypothèses plausibles qui peuvent être tirées ici. Et il n'y a pas d'hypothèse plausible de collusion entre le déclarant et le plaignant. Il n'y a pas non plus d'hypothèse plausible que le, clairant, que le déclarant cherche à diminuer sa propre implication au moment où il l'a fait. The KA testified the, the day after the events and collaborated entirely with the police. The statement is not contradicted, it is incriminating, it is uh, timely, and is corroborative. There's no video, there's no oath. There's that hour that your colleague mentioned, that time lapse. What, we don't know what the police said. Was the mother on hand or not? So we're a bit thrown off with regard to Bradshaw. If you had those elements, then, well, we, we'd understand that you wouldn't need to cross-examine and so on. But that's the concern here. Perhaps you could say a few words on that. I understand the concern. With regard to the hour beforehand, the officers did take notes. The notes were provided in the uh, record in volume 227-128. And the hour, the exact time when the statement was made is also noted. During the encounter, the uh, KA wrote a statement and signed it. We believe that the trial judge was right to, uh, to say that excluding the hearsay would be a problem for the trial. Given the circumstantial considerations. That concludes my presentation. Replique. Reply. Thank you very much. I will be very brief. I would like to begin by the last point that my friend raised, the notes, the four pages of notes. I would invite you to look at those. The, these are really not um, notes that explain what was said. Also, my friend mentioned that K.A. was completely transparent. 
during his statement to police. I would remind the court that according to the VD-1 form, he was accused under the criminal code despite the statement. So, and he did not, uh, he did not plead guilty. There was a charge against him. So I would say that the transparency um, that the respondent is claiming here is not necessarily there. I would also say uh, that my friend spoke of deference and I would submit that paragraph 48 of the Court of Appeal decision uh, drafted by Justice Bachan explains exactly the error made by the trial judge and that is an error that can be reviewed by a Court of Appeal and the Court of Appeal does not have to show the same deference in a case like that. Uh, that's my reply. Thank you. Thank you. I would like uh, to thank Council for uh, their excellent submissions and we will be uh, taking uh, the uh, under advisement. Court is adjourned.